Hawkeye fans, let's talk about health and performance optimization for a moment. Our sponsor, Ascent Nutrition, offers amazing products. It's actually owned by former Iowa graduate Lance Shuttler. Now, I've decided to partner with Ascent Nutrition because of their unique approach to human health. Ascent offers an organically grown mold and mycotoxin-free coffee. It provides a pure, clean, and rich flavor without those pesticides that most coffees are treated with. They also offer an algae oil DHA, which is used to support brain health, memory, and focus, as well as proper nervous system development in adults, children, athletes, and even pets. Now, lastly, their unique crafted wild pine pollen is used to support cardiovascular health, hormonal function, and a healthy libido. Your purchase not only supports this channel, but the business of a former Hawkeye. Visit GoAscentNutrition.com or click the link in the description below and use the code Hawkeyes. That's the code Hawkeyes to receive 10% off your total order from Ascent Nutrition. So appreciate Ascent Nutrition as always. And we are joined by the one and only Scott Docterman of The Athletic, a guy who's been on the beat since uh, I was just a, a, well, I shouldn't say since I was a, a whisper of my of my mother's uh, womb, if that's the right term. Scott, how long have you been on the beat? For? Uh, I've been, in, I've covered Iowa since 2006, when I, when I joined the Cedar Rapids Gazette, but I did some work in the 90s too. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm now officially an old dude on the beat, I guess. That's not, not nothing wrong with that. And um, uh, so, yeah, I would have been 10 years old in, in 2006. So mm. <laughs> don't let that age you, Scott. But uh, first of all, appreciate you taking the time uh, for the next hour. We're going to be talking Iowa football. Of course, we're just about knee deep into fall camp here. Uh, a couple of weeks we will be knee deep into fall camp. And we just got done with Big Ten Media Days in Chicago. I know you were covering the Big Ten deep beat for the athletic and I think all of us as fans and, and people who cover the sport, we probably read a bit too much at times into what's said at these events, but they're entertaining nonetheless. We got a, a preseason depth chart. The media guide was released for Iowa football. Um, this is going to be a hard question, maybe the toughest question I'll ask you all day, Scott, but how would you sum up? Was there anything that you took specifically away from Kirk and, uh, of course, the three representatives he had uh, from his team? Anything specifically you took away from media days? Yeah, that's that's pretty wide ranging, but I can't really say that I learned a whole lot there. I, I would say the two things that that stuck out to be news wise were uh, Justin Britt and Jackson Ritter being out for the season. So that does adjust the not only the depth chart, but but how you kind of arrange the the uh, deck chairs on the football Titanic going forward. So there there are some concerns there. So I think that's probably what I. I thought was the primary news situation. As far as anything else goes, you know, on the Iowa side of things, it was pretty non-eventful. I mean, <laughs> I was running around with my head cut off doing a lot of the Big Ten stuff, but but when it came specifically to Iowa, it was kind of like, okay, that's really it. Um, you know, I, I, I was working on a story about uh, some of the scheduling in the future um, and whether or not Iowa is going to be able to play its rivals. Uh, now and into the future, and that's going to be uh, something that's touch and go from here on out. But, but by and large, I would say the Brit and the uh, Jackson Ritter news was probably top of the of the list. Before we get to people's phone calls, and it will open the line up here in a moment, I do want to address those two injuries because uh, those are significant for two positions that were positions of struggle last year. And, of course, there's already been some attrition at wide receiver with the departure of Charlie Jones, the departure of – Tyrone Tracy, Jackson Ritter's a guy who got some time last year. I expected him 
likely to be the fourth guy in. Uh, now you see Alec Wick on the depth chart, and there are a couple other scholarship guys, Brody Breck, Deontay Vines. How much of a concern is wide receiver for you right now, especially with that additional injury for a guy who had played last year? I would actually say that when it comes to position and position alone and depth-wise, it's number one for me uh, because losing Tyrone Tracy was expected throughout the course of the year. He didn't really have a – uh, you know, a banner season, and he was a disappointment. And it was probably twofold. It was probably mutual. Uh, they didn't do a good enough job getting them the ball and in areas to make him successful. And then, likewise, they tried and he failed. So I think that was expected. Charlie Jones' situation was not expected. So when you go from you know four to three, uh, that that really draws some questions, especially when two of those receivers didn't play a lot in the spring. And somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to have a an ankle or, you know, God forbid, a hammy, because that really will sideline you for a month or more. And so you need to have a couple of guys step up. And Alec Wick did a nice job in the spring. I, I think he's probably established himself as somebody who's a candidate for uh, a lot of snaps. I think Caden Weijin is probably another one. And uh, but you really want your scholarship guys because that's why they're there. Uh, Brody Brecht has not really been able to dedicate himself entirely to football. Uh, you know, last year he broke his wrist really early into camp, redshirted, uh, did did a nice job by all accounts on the on the uh, scout team, but now he finally get, has a chance to kind of. Uh, you know, prove himself as a football player. And, and Deontay Vines, it's time for him to, to take that step forward or it probably won't happen. But finally, one guy that I think that a lot of people have talked about, or certainly Arlen Bruce, really touted, and that was Jacob Bostic, who is comparable maybe to Amir Smith-Marset. They, you know, they need somebody who can take the top off a of defense, and he's somebody who has great speed. He's a little lanky. He's probably a little bit bigger than Amir was, uh, maybe not quite as fast because Amir was lightning and lightning speed. So in my eyes, what I expect for them is if they can get, say, one of the walk-ons, whether that's Weijin or Wick, to kind of take a role, and then maybe one of those uh, scholarship guys, you know, Brecht or, or Bostic or possibly Deontay Vines to take a role and they feel good at five, then I think they're okay. But but right now they are right at the minimum of what they can do. And they need to really attack that position going forward, both in recruiting and, and what I would think is in the transfer portal. This is maybe a dumb question, but can we assume that when you just don't hear of a, like Deontay Vines comes to mind of a scholarship guy who, just never really gets brought up in press conferences. I never hear Kirk talk about him, but he's he's there. He's not in the portal. Um, like, is is that your perception of things with him that he just really hasn't progressed to where? Because you, you're talking, you're hearing more things about Jacob Bostic. Maybe that's just because he is a, a freshman and a, you know potential uh, conversation starter with the media. But your thoughts on Vines? Yeah, I haven't really seen him compete. You know, he wasn't available in the spring, and uh, you know, last year again, he would have been you know, probably seventh, eighth, ninth on the depth chart. There was some attrition last year, some scholarship guys who decided to move on. And and so he never really got that opportunity. I think he played a, uh, maybe five snaps or something last year. So without really getting a chance to see him in the spring and without getting a chance to, to see how he runs routes, if he catches the ball in traffic, do any of those things, it's hard to really bring him up. And, you know, the, the players themselves, they – you know, they, they try to downplay it. They don't always like to do that. But but Arlen Bruce was emphatic about Jacob Bostic. So I've, I've got eyes on him when we finally get a chance to see him in, in an open practice in the middle of August, just because he's frankly able to 
if he can establish himself, get some speed down the field, maybe he makes plays, maybe he doesn't, but maybe he just alters coverage enough so other guys can do that. And I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought up Justin Britt because offensive line is my biggest concern. I'm concerned about wide receiver, but uh, I-, I made the comment the other day that m- my three biggest concerns as it relates to positions towards the end of last year are the same concerns I have as we head into 2022. You hope that there are some significant improvements, but of course, quarterback, offensive line and wide receiver. We talked about the attrition at wide receiver and now some injury problems. But you also look at the offensive line now with Britt gone, Scott, you have maybe, you could argue, your top four interior linemen from last year gone. Connor Colby may argue that. But uh, with with Linderbaum and Britt, along with Schott and Ince, those are some significant losses. And I know Ince and Britt dealt with some injuries. How comfortable are you right now with what you've seen, the limited action you've seen in practice from a guy like Tyler Ellsbury and a guy like Logan Jones who's switching over from from defense? for those guys to just be able to plug and play because it didn't work necessarily as well as uh, expected at times last year. I'm probably less concerned than I was a year ago at this time. And in part was they had the confluence of a lot of different uh, issues last year. Cause as you said, you know, I, I felt going into last summer that they had a trio of interior guys that was as good as if not everybody in the nation, they were, they were as good as, most of the teams. I mean, Linderbaum was the best center in the country. There was no question there. But Cody Ince was an all was a the caliber type of player who could have been all all conference. And then Kyler shot twenty twenty. Yeah, he had a great twenty twenty. Right, and he's an he's an athlete. He's strong. He's physical. He had all the attributes he wanted. And then Kyler shot was you know a tryhard, but he was also very efficient in how he performed. So I think you have that kind of. The, those three, and then you have knock off two of them, coupled with the fact, I mean, this team ran the ball exceptionally well in 2020. And Allard Jackson is a guy that probably wasn't uh, respected enough, at least out, outside the program, for what he could do in the run game and how he could seal the edge and perform and, and be able to do all these types of things uh, with his team, uh, with, you know, with the outside zone specifically. And uh, by the way, my cat apologizes <laughs> trying to jump on me. You're but, not supposed to have problems with wildcats. Uh, like I know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when you have, um, you know, you, you lose your tackles, that was going to be a sore spot anyway. So when you then you throw on new guys on the on the guards, that became a real issue. I saw growth. I did. I mean, Mason Richmond was a redshirt freshman. And I've seen it before where they've had young guys who have really struggled in the very beginning, Jackson being one of them. Worfs was kind of one of them. Uh, you know, athletically he could get by, but he was not anywhere near refined as a true freshman. Uh, but by year two, they were much better. And and I expect that out of Mason Richmond. I expect that out of Connor Colby. Um, you know, whether it's good or just serviceable, I don't know. I mean, that's going to be up to them. But I think there will be much improved. Uh, Logan Jones is a guy that fascinates me for a couple of reasons athletically, he really doesn't have many peers at Iowa. I mean, what he's able to do in the weight room is extreme. It's really incredible. But what he'll probably do is get get by with a lot of his athletic ability and his, his power and his strength. And as he catches up with his fundamentals, he'll make some mistakes, but I think he'll be okay there. Uh, you know, I'm concerned with depth, but, you know, Jack Plum and Nick DeYoung got a lot of valuable reps last year. They weren't very good. They weren't very good. I, I, I can admit that right away. But 
again, going through that, you can't, you can't replicate the actual experiences you get. So I do think that right now, if, uh, if Jack Plum becomes one of those fifth year, great stories that Kirk seems to have, uh, and it goes all the way back that a lot of times, boom, there's Ross Reynolds. He had a really nice year or, uh, Josh Keppel, or, you know, a lot of guys that just kind of come out of nowhere and have good years. I think they're capable of that. So by and large, I look at this unit as last year below average this year at worst average. And that's a step up. I kind of put uh, John Wagner and Jack Plum kind of in the same bag. Maybe I shouldn't, but it's now or never for those guys. Right. And and you're going to see Jack Plum's errors. They're going to be more obvious maybe than than John Wagner's. But both those guys have good potential. I think John Wagner, I know we're kind of switching gears a bit looking at the defense, but really good size. Um, I think he's got the tools. He struggled with some injuries as well. But but going back to Plum, Plum is a guy you just expect as a senior. It's it's now or never, right, Scott? I mean, you're not going to get uh, – I don't know if he has another year, but uh, you better, uh, you know, put, put your hand on the wheel and go. Yeah, it is now or never for him. If, if he can't solidify that position early, and he's going to get some cracks. He's going to get some cracks at some really good players. And I think when you look at uh, – uh, you know, in the second game, he's going to be facing Will McDonald the fourth. I mean, and if he doesn't, ha- if he has a game like he did against Aiden Hutchinson, then somebody else will play at that position. Um, if he has a decent game or a good game, then he'll solidify it. So, uh, you know, that's that's where that line kind of is drawn in the sand. They've got some really good uh, now would be redshirt freshmen capable in another year or so of taking that position. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if if he really struggles. If okay. Uh, you know, in comes David Davikoff or Bo Stevens, or maybe Connor Colby moves outside and they move somebody else inside. So, but, you know, he's got his opportunity. So now it's up to him to make it work. And, and, you know, regarding John Wagner, the one thing about Iowa's defensive line in a lot of respects is uh, because they play a two gaps scheme and he plays more the left end and is required to, to take up a little bit more blockers. He doesn't quite get as many, uh, st- he doesn't make the statistics that a lot of guys do on the other side. So uh, what he does when he does his job a lot, it's just to make sure that Jack Campbell does his or the weak side linebacker, in this case, Seth Benson or Justin Jacobs. They do theirs or tie it up to the fact that then that somebody else maybe comes free. So, yeah, I think John needs a, a few more explosive plays up front. But by and large, I thought he had a, a, a quality year. I would probably say a better year than probably Jack Plum did on the offensive side. I'm going to open the call in here in a second. Erica has a question. Appreciate the super chat from Erica. She says, I know it's a Hawkeye show, but I'm curious what you thought uh, about Frost when he faced the media. I think he knows he's going to be gone. I, I don't know if you're referring to, I watched his, uh, at least his press conference. It was aired on BTN and he, uh, you know, declined an opening statement. I mean, to me, I mean, he's just a guy at this point. What's the point of talking, Scott? <laughs> What's the point of getting up there and, and juicing the media? I think uh, he knows it's now or never. Kind of, kind of like with Plum. Yeah, I, I think with Scott, it's it's his personality. He's very monotone in how he delivers. And I think at this point, it's it's put up or shut up. It's year five. And if he had the if his name was was Scott Dockerman and not Scott Frost, he'd have been gone after last year. I mean, let's face it, it's because he's a former Husker, and that's the reason why he's uh he's still there, because 
Uh, Nebraska doesn't tolerate that kind of those kind of losing skids, and really not a lot of t- programs do anyway. But his equity in the system is really the only reason why he's still there. And and when does he get a chance to prove that? Well, in Ireland against Northwestern, and then throughout the, the course of the season. So he's not real. Um, engaging anyway that's his personality but i think right now it's kind of zero sum and so i don't know if he knows he's going to be gone they did bring in a lot of guys a lot of transfers uh sometimes that reeks of desperation uh, there's a lot of talent there but there's always been talent there it's a matter of how he can develop that program and win in close games which obviously they have a problem doing yeah, they did well in the transfer portal casey thompson one of the better quarterbacks in the market so you know put up big numbers at texas but uh, it does reek of, of some desperation. And one more thought on Nebraska before we move on. Uh, I don't see any way Nebraska fires him midseason. But, Scott, if they lose to, to Northwestern week zero, I mean, it's it's pitchforks and torches in Lincoln. Uh, is there any way they get rid of him midseason? No, and, and here's why. I think they've got an advantageous schedule for the first month to two months of the season. Uh, they have a real shot at going, say, six and two or five and three even uh, through their first eight games. I mean, Oklahoma at home is going to be awfully difficult, of course, uh, but they're going through a coaching transition period. So there's going to be some ups and downs there. Um, you know, playing the Purdue uh, in mid in mid uh, October, that's going to be a real key indicator how they do against Illinois, uh, their crossovers. But, you know, really it's, what's going to probably determine whether he stays or goes is how he performs over his final four when they have Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa. This is a a program that hasn't beaten Iowa since 2014 or Nebraska since 2012, or I mean, uh, Wisconsin since 2012. So those are considered important games for their fan base. And if they can't win either one of those, and if they're six and six or less, I just don't see him last in another year on the job. Call-in is open, 515-635-1601, 515-635-1601. I saw uh, some comments in here about uh, Jack Campbell. Um, you know, it, it, to me, Jack Campbell, Scott, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he seems to be just the epitome of your typical Iowa recruit that kind of goes from, uh, well, he even joked about it during his uh, interview with BTN, kind of a, a no-name to being a guy who's going to play and be really good at the next level. Josie Jewell, a Decorah kid, comes to mind. Even Seth Benson is a Midwest kid who mm-hmm. was way under-recruited. I think Seth Benson might be a bit underrated, overshadowed by his counterpart. How good can this linebacking core be this year? I think it could, could be the best in the Big Ten, and if not, one of the top two or three in the country. Um, it's it's that good. It's They've got a combination of a freak athlete and Jack Campbell. Uh, Justin Jacobs fits that bill, too. And then you look at Seth Benson, I, I think, you're right there, uh, you know, Corey, that Seth is was a guy who was going to South Dakota State. They were looking at other guys and late in the in that uh, class. And, and he kind of came up and they finally pulled the trigger and offered him and he decided to come. And, uh, you know, two star guy that it's really overachieved in a lot of ways. But but Jack Campbell is, is an aberration because he's he's got four and even, you know, I'd say four star ability based on what he was able to do in high school. But growing up in Cedar Falls, Iowa, you don't get a lot of those opportunities unless you go to a lot of the camps and and really look the part. And being 6'5", almost 250, and be able to run like that, have that kind of length, that quite uh, kind of quick strike ability, um, 
you know, the, the speed that he does. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be too hyperbolic and call him the next Brian Erlacher, but he, he has a lot of those same skill traits and those, that, that ability. So can he be that at the next level? I'm not going to predict that, but I'll say this, that he tips the field when he's on it. And I, you know, I covered Pat Anger, Josie Jewell, James Morris, a lot of really good um, linebackers and Jack's height and his weight and his ability to run is a little bit more of a separator than some of those other guys. And I'm not saying he's going to be as good as Josie Jewell was because he was outstanding, but he's got, he's got greater skills than, than any of those linebackers ever had. And you look at the, uh, the defensive back room. And of course you welcome a uh, five-star and Xavier Wampa. Uh, you have uh, really good athleticism in guys like Cooper DeGene. And I think TJ Hall is a guy who's nobody's really talking about, but of course enrolled early and um, certainly has good athletic genes. Your thoughts on defensive back depth. I, I worry a bit at corner, uh, especially with Jamari Harris out in game one, although you hope that they can hold down the fort against the Jacks. Um, concerned at all about defensive back depth right now? Not really. I think that they're okay there. Uh, you know, right now, what what I'm anxious to see is just kind of how it all plays out. I mean, Kayvon Merriweather will be a starter. Uh, you know, Riley Moss, the defending or reigning, I guess you wouldn't say, def- uh, Big Ten defensive back of the year, is back. And he had a really nice season, obviously, and a really good career. Uh, Terry Roberts has been a, a quality player. He had that kind of severe bone bruise that required surgery last year that cost him most of the season. And Jamari Harris had four interceptions. He's going to be out for the opener, but he'll be back after that. So I, I like a lot of the depth there. Uh, I'm interested in free safety. Quinn Schulte has kind of taken that position. He's yet another uh, in-state uh, walk-on from a parochial school that's, that's uh, making waves. But Cooper DeGene is the one I think everybody's really watching, and he's going to – He's lining up at that cash position, and he's really grown. He's about 210 pounds now. And uh, Sebastian DeCastro and he were kind of battling back and forth, but it looks like Cooper DeGene is going to win that role. Um, You know, for the future, I I would expect Xavier Wampa to end up on the depth chart. I think he's going to be, uh, you know, probably the number two strong safety behind Kayvon Merriweather. And then then after that, he'll probably uh, step into that role in 2023. T.J. Hall had a really good spring. He he looked the part, but I think Brendan Diaz Fernandez also did. He had a uh, he really has taken steps forward. So that's a position group that it's easy to kind of go, oh man, they lost three starters. They they're missing a guy in week one, but they're always they're always put together well by by Phil Parker and and uh, you know. But I, I am anxious to see how Quinn Schulte holds down that fort because. That's uh, that's probably the one position that if I had any concern, it's that one. And Scott, you are having to replace a guy who was as sure of a tackler, at least, you know, I've, I've heard people say that throughout the year, it looked like Jack Kerner wore down a bit, but really good tackler um, in an undersized free safety in Jack Kerner. And uh, it's going to be difficult for Quinn Schulte to replace that production. I did see Reggie Bracey listed on the, the depth chart. He's a guy who's been around for a couple of years now, but you know, it's kind of in the same boat as, um, a guy like Deontay Vines, just haven't heard much. It's nice to see him um, show up on the depth chart. Um, the kicking battle is one that uh, I, I find intriguing because everything I've heard, and you've probably heard rumblings as well, is that uh, I think Drew Stevens is is likely to end up starting. I could be wrong on that completely. 
but uh, that's that's my uh, going out on a limb guess that by the start of uh, the season, September 4th, I think Drew Stevens will be the starter. But that's an intriguing battle. Your thoughts on the Blom versus Stevens and, of course, Lucas Amaya mixing in as well. Yeah, I think it's going to be Blom and Stevens. That's I, I, really been close uh, throughout workouts in the winter, the spring practices, even the summer workouts have all been pretty even. So it's really going to be about who is more consistent in camp. And how that's that's going to be hard to really determine unless uh, there it's just going to be about comfort level and and let's face it they've had some terrific kicking performances the last few years Keith Duncan was an All American Caleb Shudek had a tr- an outstanding final season there uh, Iowa's had what I think five or six games where they've had four field goals in them and uh, and then of course there's been some late game heroics from that position so. Even if Blom, you know, takes the position, or if Stevens does, or they divide it up in some sort of King Solomon fashion, uh, it's really going to come down to how they perform. And you know, it could come down to a, a kick at against Michigan or Wisconsin or even a, a Northwestern. You never know, or Iowa State. So how they perform in those tight situations and whose nerves are steel and they rely on their fundamentals is really going to be what matters the most because uh, the, Iowa traditionally plays a lot of close games, uh, they, they, especially against good opponents. So it's going to come down a lot of cases who can make those field goals. And, and I really don't have a feel on it because I've heard it both ways. People are bashful. They're, they're nervous to call in with you on the show, Scott. <laughs> uh, you intimidate people in a good way. Um, the line is open, 515-635-1601. Mark does have a question. Could this year's trio of linebackers be as good as Morris, Kirksey, and Hitchens? In hindsight, that trio was uh, about as good as you can get when you look at the NFL careers of both Kirksey and Hitchens. Um, can this group be as good? I think Jacobs might be the one question. He's got great potential, great athleticism, but I think still he's got some some proving to do. At this point in their career versus what that trio's point was like in their career, this group is better currently. Uh, Kirksey was very underrated, probably the most underrated player in Iowa history, at least in the Ferentz era, because he he was a difference maker. He could cover the slot uh, like a safety and then, of course, hit like a linebacker. And that's why he's been a starting linebacker in the NFL for eight years. Uh, Hitchens struggled a lot as a junior. He had a lot of tackles, but a lot of them were for five yards, you know, five yards past the line of scrimmage. He really came into his own his senior year. I would say Benson is more consistent than he is at this point, but Hitchens had a little bit more athletic upside. Uh, Morris was a very, very good player, but Campbell is, is otherworldly. I mean, he is the best of those linebackers. So uh, when it comes to Jacobs, I think his athletic ability is surpasses that of Christian Kirksey. He's a little bit bigger, uh, you know, a little faster, stronger. And now, now they don't rely upon the Leo position the way that that unit did. But I think uh, this unit has every bit the ability to go ahead and, uh, and, and be better than what that one was. And really what it comes down to is can it be like it was in 2004, 2005 with Abdul Hodge, Chad Greenway, and then take your pick out of the third linebacker because uh, that those that duo in particular was as good as Iowa ever will be. We do have a call caller waiting, but I, I bring up too. I think trio of linebackers that may go a bit uh, under the radar too is uh, the Jewel Bauer Fisher group. That was a pretty darn group of linebackers, correct? It wasn't just Josie Jewel. 
Yeah, Ben Neiman was really good as that outside Neiman. linebacker with them. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Josie was really good too. I mean, I would I would say that Neiman and Jewel were, you know, they, they were as good as what you have now. Um, but I would probably skew towards this one. Now, Josie's production was, you know, off the charts. And Ben was, you know, he's still in the NFL too. So uh, this unit has a little bit more to go, but – I, I would probably skew athletically t- towards this unit. Let's get to our first call. Thank you for calling from the Hawkeye of the Storm. Who's on the line? Cool. That Lamansky. Is that, did I hear you say Lamansky? You're yeah, Lamansky. You're cutting out pretty good, Lamansky. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, there you go. You're loud and clear. We got you. Yeah, I put my phone in a different place. Scott, it's nice to have you on the show. You've had a lot of years of experience. Uh, you got talking about Josie Jewell and an ex-Decora Viking, and there's great football up in Northeast Iowa with Waverly and Decora. And most people, uh, maybe Scott remembers Lon Olenzak, who played tight end and kicked until he broke his leg as a great Decora Viking and led the Hayden's resurgence of the program mightily. Uh, I guess I'd like to have both your guys' opinion on a little bit. I like to focus on coaches in the Big Ten. And, you know, Kirk's two sons with the Patriots, uh, Kirk back in the day cut his teeth out there. And it just seems to me the, the philosophical difference in coaches is really interesting. And I think Kirk is, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, I think he tries not to make mistakes. He's got a conservative approach to the game, close to the vest, which is quite Belichicky in a way, like Bill Belichick in my mind. Only Bill Belichick doesn't have the great QB anymore, and he's kind of he's mortal now in the NFL. And I just hope that uh, Kirk maybe turns new leaf, maybe go two tight ends and stand up tight ends. And our strength is at the tight end position. I don't know if our wide receivers can can get space to allow decent throw, and if the if the offensive line can't open holes, I'm probably more worried this year than I was last year. I like your spin on that. Scott, I'll let you take that one first. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting because when you look at what Kirk Ferentz has done is it, it is a risk averse strategy, and, and, but it does rely upon what unit it gives you the most success. And, and a lot of times that's protecting your defense because your defense is the one that's going to win you the game. When you look at, the Patriots, it's kind of built the same way, although they had better punchers when they had Tom Brady. Um, you know, one style that I, one thing I do remember was the game against the Colts on a Sunday night where they went for it fourth and two inside their own 35 yard line. And a lot of that was because of the way their defense was playing that they felt like that was their best punch. But in this case, uh, it, it, risk averse is frustrating to watch but it's also kind of built by the players that you have. And sometimes you can be more aggressive. Other times it's less aggressive. And I think of the Penn state game last year that, you know, it's, it seems insane at the the forefront to go ahead and take two knees, uh, bleed the clock punt and give your team, your opponent a chance to tie the game, uh, you know, late in the game. But they also knew that they were much better off, letting their defense stay on the field and try to do something maybe a little bit riskier on offense. And, and what it does show to me is that Iowa needs to get better on offense. So it doesn't look that way. 
two years ago, it ran the ball so effectively that it had no problem doing that. But um, but this year in the Kentucky game, when it did, couldn't run the ball quite as effectively as it wanted to, then it tried to keep that strategy up, and it really cost him. And Lemansky, let me just add this in. I, I agree with what Scott said. I will add this in. Uh, he brings up the Penn State game. You know, the Minnesota decision to – you know, not score on first and second uh, first and second down. And, of course, they ended up having to settle for a field goal. That's a decision that, at the time, I agreed with. And uh, I think Kirk – I remember Don Patterson on the postgame show said he didn't agree with that decision, and Kirk was admitted as such after the game as much. Uh, so I think there are moments where perhaps the – we've talked about this, Lemansky. I think there are moments where the risk-adverse mindset uh, sometimes uh, – becomes larger than time and space, if that makes sense. And, you know, I bring up the Purdue end-of-half scenario, Scott. Um, I think they were at the, their own 40, and you take a knee, and you're – I don't know what the score was at halftime, but that's a, a situation that seems obvious to me that you take a shot down the field. Um, I, just your thoughts on on those situations, Scott, because the, I understand the, what you're saying with the Penn State situation. you got a backup quarterback with – has not been able to move the ball since Clifford went out raucous crowd but a bit different when you're behind at halftime to a Purdue team you struggle against and you're giving Minnesota an opportunity to go down and win the game like with with Tanner Morgan at quarterback the Minnesota one was insane it was you know what the equivalent of half stepping you know either either score or don't um yeah. you know if that means that you're just gonna you know run the ball and try to bleed the clock and then make them go 98 yards then I, I think that's something that um you know, that, that you, you try to do, but I, I would have just scored at that point. I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, it would have been, uh, it would have been miraculous for Minnesota to score twice to win that game at that point. Uh, I'd, I'd have to look at my notes specifically for the Purdue game. I do know that they struggled so mightily in the first half that it was almost like, let's just, I think they threw either threw an interception or almost threw an interception before that. And it was like, let's just get out of here before we cause any, have any more damage. Uh, but you know, that strategy has backfired on him. No question. I think the Kentucky game showed that. And, and the one that will always stick out for him. And he admits that he would have done it differently was in 2009 where you have the ball with 45 seconds left and 70 yards to go in the tie game. The winner wins the Big Ten championship game against Ohio State, and he chose to take a knee, go into overtime, and then uh, then lose against the, the Buckeyes. And, and it was a great game, but it didn't work out in Iowa's favor, and I think he realizes that he does have to be a little more aggressive. But he also doesn't want to put his defense in a position where they can't succeed because that is the one unit they can win with. Uh, this year they're going to have to be better, and uh, we haven't really haven't talked about quarterback, but quarterback has to be better. Period. If that's not the case, then they kind of skated by by the edge of their seats last year. I, I almost say that it was kind of like trying to get the last drop of ketchup out of a bottle. You know, it was like they did everything they could to squeeze out ten wins. That's not going to be the case this year. You know, field goal they may miss field goals. Um, something bad will happen if they get the same quarterback play. So. That to me is probably the most the, the difference making position on the field and in improvement. And Scott, tougher schedule. You don't have Charlie Jones to bail you out of the Illinois game, or uh, certainly uh, special teams is really good in the Nebraska game, which uh, special teams may be good, but you brought up kicker uh, changing hands. Lemansky, you still on the line? I am. Uh, I was kind of, I don't have a, I'm not smart enough in football to know a, a take on this, but. 
what I thought happened last year was the turnover margin success in the first half was just huge and uh, gave us some field goal attempts that were made with a great kicker. And I thought the second half it just didn't develop, and I thought that was telling for the second half of the year and why the momentum slowed and, and even why uh, the games are so close. Do we give Phil Parker credit for teaching that, and can we do that again in this fall? Or your take on that wonderful turnover margin success that Iowa had last year and your, both your thoughts on that? Ahead, well, Scott. yeah, Iowa always prides itself on turnover margin. It's it's something that they um, that they do really well most years. And uh, but Spencer Petras kind of knocked that back a little bit with you know, especially in the Purdue game with four interceptions. But but you know that getting twenty five interceptions is rare. It's the most for a Power Five program since two thousand fourteen. But you know Iowa has led the country over you know lots of different. Uh, time measurements in in interceptions. So I would expect them to have somewhere between 18 and, and 22 interceptions. If they can continue to do that and take care of the ball, that that'll be a uh, you know that, that'll be you know really a, a help in in the way they compete against some of these really good teams. Anything else, sir? I'll hang up and enjoy the show. Thanks, fellas. Thanks, Lemansky. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, I. I uh, I would add to that uh, to that call from Lemansky that uh, you know you, you you look at what Phil Parker has done. Um, obviously, you're a, he kind of goes against the grain as it relates to the data because the data would say you, you can't sustain turnovers to that, especially interceptions. And to some extent, they did sort of come back down to earth as the season went on last year. One thing I think that, that uh, Phil Parker would admit needs to improve is they didn't do a great job forcing fumbles. Uh, I believe they were one of the last in the conference in forced fumbles. That's probably something where there's room for improvement. They they allowed a lot more explosive plays last year than people realize. So um, it was not a perfect year. I do think you're going to have those numbers skewed when you rack up, what, seven turnovers against Maryland. But as you brought up, the turnover margin was skewed a bit when you have a, a four-interception day from a guy like Spencer Petrus. Um, all right, we're going to be right back. We're going to talk about the quarterback battle to finish this show up and Scott will give uh, his take on the ongoing battle, what we hope to be the ongoing battle between two or three uh, quarterbacks. So we'll be right back after this, a word from our sponsor. You may have heard of the real life Hawkeye man cave known as Kinnick under the kitchen. Well, after lots of hard work, there's not much space left to paint, but the walls are exploding out for public consumption. Under the Kitchen is proud to announce that you can now purchase exclusive prints of some of your favorite Hawkeye legends, including wrestling great Spencer Lee, football players Tyler Goodson, Riley Moss, and Drew Tate, plus an all-in-one Murray family legacy print featuring Keegan, Chris, and Kenyon Murray himself. Signed and unsigned prints are available, making the perfect collectible or gift for any Hawkeye enthusiast. For more information on purchasing one of these outstanding Hawkeye prints, visit Under the Kitchen on Facebook. That's Under the Kitchen on Facebook. We are back here. Hawkeye Hangout from the Hawkeye of the Storm with the one and only Scott Docterman of The Athletic. And uh, we saved this uh, discussion uh, for the final 
uh, portion of our show, Scott. And I, of course, I have here on the banner future at quarterback. But I mean, future, we're talking short term future because we got fall camp starting here in just days. Um, I did make a statement on the show just yesterday that uh, I think it's a two man race right now. Maybe. I think it's a two man race. Maybe I will be shocked if it's not Spencer September 4th. I don't mean to to throw a, a dart in the hearts of people who want to see Joey Labus, but you know, the, just the language. Maybe I'm reading too much into language from Big Ten Media Days, but the language from um, Kirk Ferentz and the reps, the the player reps who were there. Is there any way Labus ends up starting September fourth? Yeah, if the other two are injured, uh, there's really no right. way he's going to be he's going to be a starter and. And uh, they wanted to see a lot from him in the spring, and he kind of showed that he's got a little bit of a ways to go. And that's not to say that he's not wouldn't be better than than Spencer Petras or Alex Padilla. And who knows what will happen in camp because you'll really get to see them up close. But they will under you know stronger circumstances. But I would say that the odds on favorite, if I was to give it by percentage of those three. I would say Spencer is 85% chance the starter. I would say uh, Padilla is probably 13% chance the starter. And uh, Labus is probably 2%. You're more positive about uh, Padilla and Labus. I think I said uh, Labus was 0.01. And I mm-hmm. said uh, Padilla is about 1%. Mm-hmm. So now, w- with that being said, I-, I sure hope that's not the case. I sure hope there's an open battle with everyone, including Carson May. I think you and I both know Carson May. Uh I shouldn't say hell will freeze over before he starts his fall. But uh, if that's the case, then you've got some serious injury problems, as you brought up. Um, I did see uh, a question here from Steve. Any news after Spencer went to the Manning camp? We see that 70-yard bomb that mm-hmm. was ooing and eyeing people on Twitter, which I think we read way too much into stuff like that without a pass rush, without a without a defensive back, uh, one throw in a 10-second uh, clip. But any anything that you took from uh, – what you've heard about his performance at the Manning Academy? Not, not entirely. I mean, he, he did talk a little bit about it and he was, you know, very happy to be able to kind of br- rub shoulders with those guys. And, you know, he and uh, Aiden O'Connell, he said, had a conversation with Eli Manning about a certain defense in the league. He wouldn't list which one, but I would probably say Wisconsin because Aiden O'Connell struggled against them too. And, and how they go about a couple of different things. So, uh, you know, so if that's if he gets one piece of advice that sticks with him and it helps him this year, I, I think you just you know you, you praise the Lord. You know, if you're if you're Iowa and you're Spencer Petrus, but it's about production with him. He's done a nice job. I will say this about him: he has worked really hard. He's he has tried to improve in all these different ways. He spent his spring break. Not on a beach in Florida or, or South Padre Island. He went to New, New Jersey to work with a, a quarterback whisperer. He did the same thing uh, before, you know, in late May, you know, when he could have been in California uh, relaxing. So he is really focused on improvement. But, you know, being focused on it and actually doing it are two different things. And and right now, you know, he's he's got the worst percentage of, of long uh, – of, 20 plus yard passes among big 10 quarterbacks returning and he's got a lot of uh, struggling. And if, if he can't run, which he can't um, not to an effective level, you better have a higher completion percentage than 57% because you better be closer to 64, 65 to be an effective quarterback in this league. And, and so that's kind of the number that he needs to reach before you can kind of say, okay, you know, he's, he's made some good strides. And as I've said on numerous occasions, he's got a beautiful deep ball. 
Mm-hmm. If you don't got time, right? It's, I mean, we know it starts at the offensive line. If you don't have time and receivers aren't getting separation, um, and as you brought up, the the lack of mobility, that's a problem. Let's get to our next call. Thank you for calling from the Hawkeye of the Storm. Who's on the line? Hello, Corey. Hello, Scott. It's Derail MVP. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So my question is, if Spencer doesn't pan out, how much of the blame will fall on him? How much of the blame will fall on Brian, uh, Brian versus Kirk versus the offensive line? Do you think they all would share the blame equally? Do you think there's one person that would take most of the blame? How do you think it would be distributed? Well, I can, I can, I can take my shot at this first, Scott. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, in in my opinion, Drill MVP. First of all, we can't we can't project the future. So, are his struggles going to be again in in large part due to the offensive line? Which I think you could argue in large part they were due to the offensive line. But as I've stated on numerous occasions, and I think that Scott would back this up. There were a, n- a number of issues. It wasn't you, you cannot just blame one unit, and you'd almost like to because you can pinpoint the problem. But I mean, Kirk's talked about this. He talked about it at media days. There are a number of things that need to uh, be done. He talked about execution, offensive line play. I think receiver separation, wide receiver play still needs to get better, um, and certainly Spencer needs to get better with his reads and, and accuracy, um, decision making. And but yeah, ultimately it comes back to in in from my vantage point, drill MVP. It comes back to coaching. Um, and right now, Brian is Kirk has put Brian in line for not just some, but almost all of the criticism. Of course, it ultimately falls back on Kirk. But now giving Brian a promotion and doubling down despite the inept offense, uh, do you have another uh, vantage point, uh, Scott? I think it's, uh, you know, kind of, again, the confluence of so many different issues accumulating in one in one season that made it all look bad. I mean, number one is that, uh, you know, they were pressured quarterbacks, both of them, Padilla and P- Petras, were pressured on 33% of their dropbacks last year, which was 79th in, among FBS teams. That's not going to get you anywhere uh, as a quarterback. I think the decision-making by and large by Petrus wasn't too bad, but his accuracy issues were. Um, I think, you know, the, the running game, which uh, was disastrous at times, I think there was an issue with, uh, you know, Tyler Goodson trying to hit the home run instead of sometimes just taking the walk to first base, you know, not to mix, mix analogies here with different sports, but sometimes getting second and 10 would have been a lot better than second 13 and tr- or, or trying to get something that wasn't there. Um, conceptually, the offense is a little bit too rigid, I think. And I think there, there needed to be better levels of depth with some of their route concepts that some of that has been reshaped, but until you can get a quarterback who can hit those, those routes that can do it more consistently and then, of course, have give them a little bit more time in the pocket. It's going to be difficult. Everything's going to come back to the offensive coordinator and what he calls or what he doesn't call. Last year, there wasn't much he could call that would work out. And um, and so from there, that then it also spells over into recruiting and retention of student athletes. So last year was a bad, bad, bad year. How you measure Iowa's offense and, and its success some people do it by total offense. That's not really the metric that matters for Iowa. Um, yards per carry is, is much more of a, an effective tool. Red zone efficiency, which was horrible last year, is a much more effective tool. And completion percentage is something that really matters because sometimes it's just as simple as sustaining drives. 
is worth more than just than gobbling up a whole bunch of yards. Yeah, with the uh, the schedule they got this year as well, it's going to be even if they make little improvements, it's going to be difficult because of their matchups out on the other side of the conference with Ohio State and Michigan. They've got a tall task in front of them, but I'm confident that they can do it. Uh, thank you for the breakdown, and thanks for letting me call in. Hit the like and subscribe button. Let's try to get Corey to 3,000 before this football season starts. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. And um, Lomansky uh, brings up the running game as well. He says the running game is key to success. It would keep pressure off and allow time to throw. So appreciate that super chat from Lomansky. And this is, I'm not going to totally, we've only got about 10 minutes left. I do want to address a question from John. I've had this, I've had people bring up this before to me, and I've never had you on the show before, Scotty. People want a Dr. Morehouse reunion. Oh, it'd be great. Uh, You know, Mark and I, we kind of started this, launched the whole industry that it is today uh, with the On Iowa podcast back in 2010. And, uh, you know, since Mark kind of retired from the Cedar Rapids Gazette and is off in the in the Driftless area of Galena, Illinois, we've we've had a few here and there. We did have one on the athletic website uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, He joined me for a live chat um, or live show and that worked out well. I'd, I'd really like to have more. And I've always said, you know, hey, in Eastern Iowa, somebody should, uh, some radio station should uh, ante up and put us back together at least once a week. But, but uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with Mark. And we always did. We did a lot of crazy things over the years. And I'd certainly be able to do more with him in the future if, if time allows. Galena's not that far, right? How far is Galena from you? Um, for me, an hour and a half or so. It's, it's east of Dubuque, so... Okay. I live in the Iowa City area. So what's what's a town that's directly, if you were to go to Galena, what's the town that's 45 minutes from your place and 45 minutes from his? What would that town be? Well, it'd be scary, but it'd probably be like Anamosa. You know, as long as we don't end up in the prison, I think we'd be all right. That's not a given, you know. Do an on-Iowa podcast from the prison. I'm sure you can find some hot fans in there. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Johnny Cash live from San Quentin, or uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, that'd be us live from uh, Anamosa Penitentiary. <laughs> uh, Paul brings up uh, your your uh, your radar as far as the high school beat is concerned. Any Iowa high school QBs out there that uh, Hawkeye should start looking at? JJ Cole, a guy just south of here that, of course, is a Cyclone, uh, but now we're shifting our attention more to, to I guess to twenty four and twenty five. Anybody that fans should keep their uh, eyes on. I haven't quite gotten that far yet. I know there are a couple out there. Uh, you know, right now, Marco Linez, the third, is is a guy that is coming in next year. He's one that I think everybody's going to like. Iowa went after him hard. Um, his skill set is probably what will really excite Iowa fans because he's a little shorter than a few of the more recent quarterbacks, a little stockier, not necessarily a dual threat, but has dual threat abilities. He can run. Uh, he's physical and he, and he can throw and he's pretty accurate. So uh, that's a guy I think people will really gravitate towards once he gets on campus. Uh, but, you know, I'm not, I haven't quite identified a lot of the 24 and 25 candidates. I will like to watch them this fall if I get a chance to. And then, you know, JJ Cole, I think will, will be a really nice addition for the Cyclones. And, um, you know, he was somebody that they strongly considered go, you know, back uh, a year ago. I had Marco Linez on the show here a couple months ago, and he just screams face of the program. Like he's just, you've probably had conversations with him, just really 
I mean, a very humble guy. He's a good-looking guy. I mean, he just—he's just like the face of what you want as the face of the program. So he's got the potential. And you brought up the, his ability to be somewhat dual threat. He told me that he emulated his game after Brad Banks. He said he actually grew up being an Iowa fan, and and so that's going to tickle the, the ears of Iowa fans, Scott. And so, yeah, uh, definitely. The, the quicker he can learn the offense, the better. Steve brings up John Budmeyer. Says, do you think John Budmeyer will help Iowa's QB play? Had Chuck Hartley on the show uh, a week or two ago course a relative through marriage of, of john uh and he was pretty bullish on john but john budmeyer helping this offense and helping brian ferentz do, do you bought into that, that that there's going to be a significant difference primarily because of him and of course now he's he's on staff as a paid analyst yeah i do i, I actually think he will help this offense because uh, i mean he played the position and the one thing that he does that a lot of other quarterback analysts or if they would have brought in another quarterback coach he understands the relationship between, you know, the complementary style of play, because he dealt with it at Wisconsin and Colorado State for that matter, which is it's a defense first philosophy. They run the football. And how does the quarterback play off of that? And Spencer Petras talked a little bit about how some of his uh, matrixes that he has them go through, at least in the video portion of it, and how that's really helpful to him because it's like, okay, what do we do when we get cover three? What do we do when we get cover four, cover two? man and how do we how does this you know and, and so they go through the plays the concepts against the different schemes and a lot of it is really quick quick thinking and for john to be able to do that and as an analyst and it's got a, it's very helpful for brian ference i mean brian understands all the concepts of quarterback play he can kind of you know be self-deprecating when it comes to it and understandably so he can't throw a, a real good pass but um but i think that uh working in tandem in the, you know, in, in some of the, in the rooms, I think will really be beneficial to this and maybe just smooth it out a little bit. Cause I think it is a very complicated scheme. I sat six hours with Brian Ferentz uh, last month and went over a different, a lot of different things and concepts. And it is, it's a challenge to get your mind around it. Scott, do you, I, I, I don't know if, if you talked to Brian about this, but did he consult with anybody? Chuck Long, um, I, you know, I, I'm Bill Snyder, anybody that Hawkeye fans would know of that maybe he's talked with during the offseason, because, of course, he's getting a lot of help from Tony Rassiope. But your average Iowa fan, and I would probably be included that and think that he, he needs to understand the fundamental side of quarterback play, even if he is relying on private coaches, which is that's just what the day and age we live in, that these quarterbacks are going to have their private instructors. Is he, you know, if he's reached out to any of these guys. Yeah, a little bit, uh, but it's more probably more at the pro level uh, because right. those offenses are a little bit more skewed to what Iowa does. I mean, and so I, I think you know the, the the Patriots. In fact, I think Kirk Ferentz was there today, you know, watching his son compete yeah, saw that. again. So uh, that was uh, I think that's probably the extent of what he's trying to do. But you know, they did go through a heavy evaluation of their offense and especially the passing offense, and there were things like depth of route, which you really don't think at the forefront or is that important, but it's actually ultra important, which is an extra step here, a better turn here. It just adds that not only the separation physically with the defensive back, but the spacing of the field is so important because a lot of times when you get routes that run too close to one another, there's not enough, uh, then there's not enough separation. And then, uh, you know, of course that leads to a lot more incompletions. 
And we are running out of time here, but Mark, appreciate the super chat. He says, uh, the Vikings released Nate Stanley last week. Will anyone sign him? Could he find success in the CFL? I did see he was working out for the Packers. But any, any read on Nate Stanley's future? It's going to be tough at this point um, of the season. You know, maybe he gets signed, but I'm not sure he's going to be able to stick now. Uh, the, the one thing that he's got, I would say more than the CFL, because that's more of a, it's a wider field. It's a longer field. They usually like more dual threat quarterbacks. I, you know, having the USFL and the CFL, and now finally Nate Stanley's healthy because he did have back surgery last year, which cost him the whole entire season, that maybe he can go to the USFL or the XFL and uh, latch onto a team, see some snaps, and maybe that'll parlay him into a little bit more uh, action come next year and beyond in, in, in the NFL. This might be a good chance to plug your work over at The Athletic. Lomansky wants you to give us a, a Hawkeye record, but you, you are not to be made to feel guilty, Scott, if you say, no, that's uh, we're going to keep that to uh, your stuff over at The Athletic. Do you, have a, do you, if you want to share a record? Or do you want to share some other prediction for the 22 season? I'm bullish on Iowa. I, I think the offense is going to be improved. I think the defense will be even better. It may not have as many interceptions, but I think it'll be uh, better up front. I think the linebacking core is as good as there is in the country, and I think the, the secondary will be good. So as long as they can run the ball effectively, complete 60% of their passes, and don't turn it over as much as they did last year, I, I expect this team to be very, very good. I have them right now as a 10-2 and two team, and – probably playing in Indianapolis. I think it could come down to a tiebreaker again, but uh, I, I look at uh, Iowa and Wisconsin are kind of in similar territory at quarterback. Which one could get off the deck? Which one, you know, can – which one of their quarterbacks who came in with a lot of, you know, ta uh, high accolades can actually do something and, and have a, a – be a successful season uh, – successful team. So I have Iowa 10-2, and two, and I think I have them going to Indianapolis, but – you know, playing Ohio State once, twice, three times isn't really the recipe I would say for success for anybody. I was gonna say, so you you've got them at ten and two, which is I'll just admit this is higher than I have them. But uh, is that losing the every or winning every game but Ohio State, Michigan, or do you have them beating Michigan at home? I've beaten Michigan at home and losing to Minnesota on the road. So you, that includes a, a win at Purdue and a win at home against Wisconsin. Yes. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, Wisconsin's losing its top three wide receivers or top two wide receivers in tight end. Um, a lot of, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter. They, they, uh, they're kind of like Iowa in their secondary, uh, but they do lose a lot of defensive players who are really good. Um, so it's going to come down to quarterback between those two teams and it is in Iowa city. Um, so I expect them to do well. Purdue. I don't know if they have a difference maker yet. Um, you know, maybe Charlie Jones takes that step forward. He was a, a good, serviceable wide receiver, uh, an outstanding kick returner. But I'm not sure that, uh, you know, that, that they can do the trick again against the Hawkeyes. Uh, there's going to be teams. There's going to be games. I mean, Iowa State's going to be a difficult game. You know, as much as Iowa State loses, I, I still think that they're going to uh, be a difficult matchup at times for Iowa. Um, you know, Illinois could be even cause, uh, cause some problems. But and Rutgers I, is dangerous. And Rutgers, you never know. I mean, you could be looking ahead, you know, and yeah. play, a night, play a night game at Kinnick against Nevada, and you go to Rutgers, it's all the way out there. And the one thing about a Greg Schiano team is they will punch you in the face. They may yeah. lose 31 to nothing, but the, you're going to know you're in a game. So, uh, you know, there are all kinds of different places where they could trip up, but I do think this is a really good team. It's easy to overlook that when you have such a an offense that's, you know, it's, it's not very good. 
but I do think that that will, unit will get better and the defense will hold serve for most of the season. Is there as much bad blood between Jeff Brom and Kirk Ferentz as it seems? Yeah, I would say that Purdue and Iowa right now are at a similar level as Iowa and Michigan State 10 years ago. Going to be a fun game in West Lafayette. And uh, Bora Rem slips in one final question. We, we're going over time here. He says, what's going on with wide receiver recruiting? I know they got a, a visit coming up with, uh, is it Bryson Vowell? Uh, they've struggled. Jaron Tibbs being a guy, speaking of Purdue, that ended up yeah. committing to the Boilers. They missed on Ke- uh, Kyler Casper, of course. Any other guys to, to look for besides Vowell? At this point, it's it's pretty slim pickings. Uh, you know, that's an area where I, I think there's there's a couple of things they can do going forward, and that is, you know, Alex Moda coming in, he'll be a, he'll be a real asset. And yes. but but they're going to still need to get two to three, even you know, maybe as many as a total of four recruits going into next year. Now, how can they do that? Well, they can hit the transfer portal, which I would say is something that they probably should do with regularity at wide receiver with as much attrition as they right. have. The other thing is just go see who's committed to, to back schools. You know, some two star that's going to Eastern Michigan uh, named Antonio Brown, you know, okay, bring them to Iowa City. They'll want to play in the Big Ten. So, but there um, is reason for concern about recruiting a wide receiver. They've done superbly. They their recruiting the last four to five years as a whole is better than it's been ever, maybe. But wide receiver is a legitimate concern because the attrition level the last 10 years is is out of sight. It is off the charts. And so they really need to uh, have playmakers at that position. And now granted, I will say this Keegan Johnson and Arlen Bruce uh, don't fit that description. I think they are really good, Um, but you need to have it, it, you know, with depth is a concern. And so I think right now they need to have a, a, you know, a couple of other players step up and go forward. So. Every time I bring up uh, Iowa struggling a wide receiver, there's somebody that, that, that rips me because I'm forgetting about Bruce and Johnson. I'm not forgetting about those two guys, but the fact of the matter is you hope they struck gold with Bostic. You hope they struck gold with Moda, who's a high school quarterback. But besides those two guys, it, there's, like you said, slim pickings, and the portal's not proven to be a, a – uh, it, it's not proven to be a dimension that uh, Iowa and Kirk Ferentz are real comfortable with, although they've used it. At wide receiver, besides Charlie Jones, which was a successful ad from the portal, um, you know Matt Quarles didn't work out. I'm trying to think of other. Are there other examples of receivers recently that I was gotten that have worked out? I'm trying to think. Um, you know Oliver Martin didn't work out, of course. Right. Um, but you know then there were they've had some success with walk-ons. Um, you know Nick Easley was one that sure. really worked out well. I mean Matt Vanderbilt. Maybe Caden Wedgen will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He could be another one. But one thing that I think you mentioned a while ago in this show and and I, I think will be their best punch offensively is that their strength is tight end. And Sam Laporte is the best offensive player. Um, and then I think you, you look at um, Luke Lachey is also another uh, you know really good player. So I think what, when you can do that and line up in 12 personnel, which they did 63% of the time when they had Hawkinson and Fant, they might be able to just decide, you know what, we're going to go too tight end most of the time. And we don't know what we got in Steve Stilianos. But I think this is uh, – uh, but if you can go 12 personnel, two wide receivers, even two running backs and two tight ends in a lot of formations, I think they'll be okay. So. And we didn't get to this, but I think Aaron Graves is going to play. Wampa's going to play. TJ Hall's probably going to play. Uh, am I missing any other true I think freshman? Bostic. Play? 
Bostick's yeah, I think Bostick's going to play too. So Tipsy McStagger uh, <laughs> says, uh, Scotty Doc's been uh, reading him since uh, the purple and gray at the Burlington Community High School. Thank you for such great uh, U of I coverage throughout the years, uh-huh. Scott. So, Scott, I echo that. Appreciate you being uh, a guest on the show. And I know that the hour flies by, but uh, anybody who's not following Scott and his stuff, follow him on Twitter at Scott Doctorman. Scott, uh, you you got a busy few months. Uh, I'm I'm gonna be busy, but you're gonna be busier. So best wishes. Uh, I like your. I, I wanted to tell you I liked your cow behind you. Was that a was that a family uh, painting? Uh, my daughter. Uh, she's a, an art uh, an art student at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. So she designed that a few years ago, and uh, I've held on to it because I keep telling her I'm, she's gonna have to sell it to some dairy company in Wisconsin and uh, pay back all our student loans that way. So uh, there you go. <laughs> And you're promoting it on here. You're promoting her work on here. So beautiful. Scott, appreciate the time and uh, enjoy a very busy few months ahead. All right. Thanks so much for having me. For Scott Dockerman, Corey Bratta from the Hawkeye of the Storm, subscribe, like the video, and we'll talk to you soon.